Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on April 27, 2018. Susan from the Isley Branch Library discusses some award-winning books. So the book talk I am going to share with you is not my usual book talk. Um, it is the usual book talk in that it is a mix of young adult and adult, but it's somewhat, if you can handle this, somewhat focused for me. Um, I did a book talk at the beginning of the month at Lincoln High with their book club, and I did the award-winning books. So everybody's familiar with, like, the Newberry. That's the book given to the best children's literature. And everybody's familiar with the Caldecott. That is the book given, um, the award given to the best picture book. In 2000, the year I actually became a librarian, (laughs) I've got my cardigan on, ladies, Um, they announced the Michael Prince Award, and that is the award given to the best young adult book. And I didn't bring that one, but it's Monster by Walter Dean Myers. And it was a great book. I loved it. Um, I personally feel, though, that Lori Halsey Anderson should have won with her book Speak, which was an honor book. But Walter Dean Myers has a tremendous body of work. He was a very gifted African-American writer and brought attention to, you know, to things that a lot of people didn't know about. Um, So he... I think he was deserving on merit, but I think it would have been get, better to give him the Edwards Award for, like, you know, body of work rather than the Prince. Not that he didn't deserve the Prince, but Speak was, like, one of the first books on on, on acquaintance rape or date rape, um, especially for young adults. And because it, it, unfortunately, it does, it does happen regardless of whatever age you are. So um, I may not stay in order, but all the books that are on this list I have read with the exception of one. And I will read it, but I'm going to listen to it because we'll talk about the Odyssey Award. We'll start with that one. The Odyssey Award is the annual award given to the producer of the best audio book produced for children and or young adults available in the United States in English. We will start, and some of these books, and I'm going to talk about it, some of these books we're going to see more than once because there was a couple of books that basically... I don't know why the other books even bothered to show up because these books just walked away with the awards as they deserved. So the three books that one that I have read or that I'm going to listen to that won the Odyssey Award are, and the one that won it was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Have you read this book yet? Oh my gosh, it is so good. And we're going to talk about it more. Um, But as you can tell, okay, this book just... It walked away with the Morris Award. That's the best new novelist. It walked away with the Prince. It was a Prince Honor book. It was the Odyssey winner. So three awards, and it was a National Book Award long list finalist. And I'm going to talk about it when I get to the Prince Award because I want to give it more time. I have a picture with Angie Thomas. I went to ALA last summer, and I got to get my... Talk about a fangirl moment. <laughs> it was autographed. I sent it. I should have kept it because, like, this book has not been on the shelf since I ordered it last March in 2017. It's been that popular. Um, but I did get an autographed copy, which I then sent to my niece, Isabel, who lives in Dallas. And it was on her assigned reading list. She goes to Hockaday, a private school in Dallas. And so she had to read it. So she got an autographed copy. Um <laughs> Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't listened to his interview on NPR, go home, check out a computer, Google it, and listen to his um, eloquent interview with um, the reporter about Long Way Down. Have you read it? Didn't you talk about that before? I know. Because I think I read it because you talked about it. 
it might i it you is know good. i it came out in october i might have talked about it for my fall book talk but in the meantime ma'am it has won the morris award yeah. it has won the prince award and i think that covers it Okay, so usually long way down, or excuse me, usually Jason Reynolds writes in prose. He, he writes traditional books with chapters. This is a novel in verse. And in the interview, he said that he wrote this book in verse for a reason, because African-American young men don't typically read. So you can read this book in 45 minutes, but this book also won the audio award. So in spite of the fact that I've already read it, I'm going to listen to it when I get a chance. He is a handsome African-American yes. man with braids. Um, and I was actually waiting in line to talk to him because I loved his All-American Boys. I've read every book he has re written. Um, oh, my gosh. I just think he's a fabulous writer. And the kids at Isley really, he gets them. You know, he, he's writing about a lot of their experiences. And so I was waiting in line for him, which was a huge line, all these, you know, well-mannered librarians standing there with our bags and cardigans. And then he, he had to go to his next engagement, and that's when I got Angie Thomas's um, autograph. So I'm going to talk about these two because they were Prince Award winners, um, and I've not listened to them, so I cannot talk about the eloquence. But they both were Odyssey winners. And then, <clears throat> I, man, I'm just breaking all the rules today. I have not read this book, and I'm going to confess to you right now, I know I have a personal long-standing rule. I know you think I have, like, anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I do not book talk books. I do not go to schools and book talk books I have not read. Now, if you come into the Isley and you ask me, you know, what I'm looking for, I'll help you find there's tricks of the trade, all that good stuff. I will read this because it's Philip Pullman. I've read all of his other, he, um, The Golden <clears throat> Compass, The Subtle Knife, The Amber Spyglass. I read all of those books, and this is a prequel. So, of course, I have to read it because it's about the world where Lyra and, and her um, Damon live. So I want to know more. But I'm going to listen to it. When I get home this afternoon, I'm going to download the book and sync it to my device so that I can listen to it. But this is a prequel about the world where Lyra and the daemons where your soul is on the outside. And, you know, there's the scientists who are cutting the connection between the, the children to gain energy because they're going to push through to an alternate. Who here read The Golden Compass? Anyone? Yeah, but no. I don't remember. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I know I read it. Um, I loved The Golden Compass and the, the Subtle Knife and the Amber Spyglass. They were challenged. They were usually in the fall. Alex at North Star is always very good about having me come for banned book week. And The Golden Compass is a book that has been banned. Um, some people feel that Mr. Pullman has not perhaps. He does. Um, they disagree with his opinion on religion. There. Oh. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to hold on to these two. This one is available, ladies. Please, no fighting. Everybody, one at a time. Okay, you guys are so well-mannered. <laughs> okay, so that those were the Odyssey. Then, all right, let's cut to the chase, ladies, and get to the Michael Prince. So Michael Prince was a librarian in Kansas. I know, Kansas. I was so surprised. <laughs> I know. I sh the Michael Prince Award, as I mentioned, was the award given to the best young adult literature. It has been in existence now for, um, they've given out 17 awards. They've all been fabulous books. Some of them I've loved more than others. One thing you should know about the awards is that they're usually a group of librarians 
bespectacled cardigan, lately more tattooed, <laughs> who sit down and they argue about the best book. And so sometimes it really is force of personality. There's also underhanded deals like where if you vote for my book, I'll vote for yours. So, I mean, you know, perhaps it's not too unlike Washington itself. So, We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. Um, I'd read her first two books, and then I hadn't read her last couple of books. So this book I had ordered because I know that she is a good writer. I hadn't read it until it won the award. It is a very quiet little book, especially compared to some of the books that were the Michael Prince winner. It is about a young woman. Her name is Marin. She had grown up in California, in San Francisco, living not far from the beach with her grandfather. Her mother had been a surfer and had died shortly after she had given birth to Marin, and all the surfers know Marin. Marin has a best friend, and they are super close, but something happens her senior year. And as a result, she has left her life. When we meet her, she is back east. She is going to a prestigious college that she got a scholarship for, and it's Christmas break. She had never experienced winter before in her life. Well, remember, Mark Twain said the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But but she's never had snow. And so she um, is snowed in. Her friend is going to visit her, but this book covers five days, and it goes back and forth between what happened that senior year and what has happened since she's come back east to go to college, how she's learning to be on her own, how she's learning to live in a different environment, and how her friend is reaching out to her to say, why did you leave all of us? If you want to know more, like I said, this is a quiet little novel. It's a quick read. We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. Okay. Long way down. I'll try not to wax on too eloquently about this, ladies. I'll pretend you're all middle school students, so if you could, like, start fidgeting maybe and playing with your stuff and talking to your neighbor, (laughs) I'll feel more comfortable. So, Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds is about a young man named Will. He's 15, 16 years old. He lives in the inner city in a tough neighborhood in the projects. There are three rules in his neighborhood. You don't cry, you don't snitch, and you get revenge. Prison. No, ma'am, not prison. Instead, (laughs) those rules apply a lot sometimes in a lot of places in life. But Will's brother, older brother Sean, has just been shot down in the street. He was on his way back from the drugstore. He had to pick up his mother's medication. She has eczema. It's painful. And he had the white prescription bag in his hand, and he gets shot down. Will knows what the rules are. He knows what his expectations are. He goes back to the apartment. He goes up to their floor, into their apartment, into the bedroom he shared with his brother, and gets his brother's handgun. They live on the eighth floor. He pushes L for lobby. Instead, the elevator floor, the elevator stops on every floor. And on every floor, a victim of gun violence, a ghost, think Jacob Marley, a victim of gun violence gets onto the elevator and tries to convince Will not to do it. If you guys read this, the next time I visit you, we will want to talk about does he do it or doesn't he? 
Long way down, as I said, this is a novel written in verse. He wrote it because he knows that young African-American men oftentimes do not read. This book won not only the Michael Prince Award, or it was an honor book, but it also was an odyssey, so it takes 90 minutes to listen to it. Twice as long as it to read. Um, but it is, whether you listen to it or read it, it is worth reading. So um, this one is nonfiction. It was both the winner for the Michael Prince and the nonfiction, so I'm not going to let it circ until I get to nonfiction. I believe we all know who Vincent and Theo, the Van Gogh brothers, are. So this is by Deborah Helligman, and she read 658 letters to write this book. She did meticulous research. And I, while I really enjoyed this book, I didn't. I knew that Vincent and Theo were brothers, but I had no idea to the extent that Theo supported Vincent. Um, Vincent has some struggles. The whole family as a whole struggle with mental illness. We need to get over this, people. People there. Some people have diabetes. Some people have heart high blood pressure. Some people have, are bipolar. Some people are schizophrenic. It's just like anything else and we need to get over this whole thing about mental illness the time 1887 though you know 1800s different time so vincent really for the most part never worked and was dependent much like blanche dubois upon the kindness of strangers or in this case his brother theo but theo really 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 was quite encouraging to him so Deborah Helligman read 658 letters to write this book. It is meticulously researched, having said that. And I didn't bring it, but I would urge you strongly. I know, you're thinking, everything you've done, Susan, has been strong. <laughs> <laughs> I would urge you to read her first book that I read, which I loved. I took it out for Teen Read Week. I told kids, if you liked Edward and Bella in Twilight, do I have a romance for you? Charles and Emma, The Darwin's Leap of Faith. And it is about Charles and Emma's marriage. Emma Wedgwood of the <clears throat> China fame. So Charles comes back from his voyage on the Beagle. He's got this crazy little idea of evolution. But he decides he makes a list. He's trying to decide should he marry or not. And he comes down on the side that he decides that he wants to marry. Um, so he dates his cousin, it was done much more back then. It, you know, they might have been originally from Arkansas. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have family in Arkansas. I feel I can say that. <laughs> so they dated, and um, Emma was very strong in her faith. And so Charles said to his dad, he's like, Dad, I, I really like Emma a lot, and I want to ask her to marry me, but, you know, I'm afraid that my crazy little idea of evolution might offend her. And his dad said, well, don't tell her. <laughs> Charles was a much more upright gentleman than that. He wrote a letter professing his love and outlining his theory. And Emma wrote him back a letter returning his affection and urging him to read certain passages from the Bible. They did not agree on that. But in spite of that, they married, they had five children together, and everything that Charles Darwin ever wrote, every book, every paper, every pamphlet Emma read and edited for him in spite of the fact that she did not agree with him. That book I think reads much more fluidly and also she does a great job of talking about the social milieu and the intellectual um, explosion that's going on in Great Britain at that time. So 
if you read anything by Deborah Heligman, you're going to get a well-researched, well-crafted book. And this year she won. I can see it has been a few years since she wrote Charles and Emma's Dar The Darwin's Leap of Faith because she does do such meticulous research. So, Vincent and Theo, the Van Gogh brothers, there's also an inset where you can see his work, my favorite picture. Everybody knows Starry Night. But my favorite picture by Vincent Van Gogh is Bedroom at Arles. And they talk about it, so that made me happy. Now, the other book that you talked about, you said that was Charles and Emma? Charles and Emma, The Darwin's Leap of Faith. Oh, which book for, I'm gonna say my, my favorite. So The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, like I said, this book basically walked away with every award. Plus it was a national book long list finalist. So this is a book about a young woman named Star. She lives in um, Atlanta. She lives in the hood, as you would call it. Her father was a king. He, he is a former gang member. He has done time in prison. He has half children. This book is very, very realistic. And the fact that people are people. Sometimes you have an affair and a child results of it. And he is raising that child. In spite of the fact that his wife is not the mother of that child. Star is the, the daughter of her dad and her mom. And she has a little brother. They live in the hood. In a neighborhood where people probably don't choose to move because her father after prison came back and he bought a business. He has the grocery store in that neighborhood. In spite of the fact that they live in that neighborhood, that her father owns the business, Star and her little brother and her half-brother all go to an elite private school where she is one of very few African-Americans in this elite private school. She's very smart, but the book opens with her at a party. And she is hanging out with her friend Khalid, who she had grown up with when her father was incarcerated. She spent a lot of time at Khalid's house and was practically raised by his grandmother. So they go to a party, and there's girls giving Star the stink eye because, you know, she doesn't go to their school, and she thinks she's all that in a bag of chips and too good for them. So she's how old? She is, um, I think, 16. Yep, yep, 16-year-old Star Carter. She moves between two worlds. So Star and Khalid go out for a ride because they haven't seen each other and they want to talk. So, when I was 12, my parents had two talks with me. One was the usual birds and bees. Well, I didn't really get the usual version. My mom, Lisa, is a registered nurse. And she told me what went where and what didn't need to go here, there, or any darn where until I'm grown. Back then, I doubted anything was going to go anywhere, anywhere anyway, because while all the other girls sprouted breasts between 6th and 7th grade, my chest was as flat as my back. The other talk was about what to do if a cop stopped me. Mama fussed and told Daddy I was too young for that. He argued that I wasn't too young to get arrested or shot. Star Star, you do whatever they tell you to do, he said. Keep your hands visible. Don't make any sudden moves. Only speak when they speak to you. Yeah. And if you think that this is a work of fiction, I have a friend no. who's married to a gentleman, mm -hmm. and she has had that talk with every one of her children. So her and Khalid are out for a, a ride. They haven't seen each other. They're talking. They get pulled over. Khalid's a good kid. 
She's giving him grief about his hair because he keeps it he keeps it cut short, but he keeps it brushed so that it looks nice. You know how in the new cars they've got those like um, I don't know, they're not really pockets, but like there's like they're molded plastic, but you can like put stuff mm -hmm. there. Well, he's got his hairbrush in the door, and the cop pulls him over. He does everything the officer asks. The officer spies the hairbrush, he panics, and he shoots Khalid. And Star is in the car, and she witnesses it all, and that this is what happens after, after the shooting. The officer is, of course, taken. He's, you know, there's going to be an investigation, and if you want to find out what happens, it's going to go around. I promise. Now, <clears throat> if you haven't, well, I, I think y'all know me. Some of you are thinking, man, I'm going to watch the, the schedule. The next time she's back, I'm not coming. All this young adult stuff. No, I, love no, it. I do too. What kept me reading as a, an adolescent, because, you know, I grew up in the 70s. It was a dark time. <laughs> yeah. 70s and the 80s. And, like, I was an avid reader. I read all of Nancy Drew, all of Trixie Belden, all of the three investigators. So I thought... I'm going to be a mystery reader when I grow up. So I got Agatha Christie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm awake. I'm awake. Did something happen? <laughs> maybe I chose the wrong book. And then there was, was, was none, was the book I should have read. And maybe I would have read another Agatha Christie. But Ms. Marple didn't quite cut it for me. No. What kept me reading was Anna McCaffrey and Robert A. Heinlein and Ray Bradbury yeah. and Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. My geek credentials are firmly in place, ladies and gentle sirs. I love science fiction and fantasy. And you know why I like young... Oh, see, I saw your faces. <laughs> I've read him, too. I do not agree with him entirely, though, but I do love Ender and Bean. <laughs> so this book was a Michael Prince Award winner. It's Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor. And I loved her first trilogy, um, Daughter of Smoke and Bone. She, this is a fantasy novel. It is about a young orphan. His name is Lazarus Strange. We know he's an orphan. He was raised um, in a monastery because all of the orphans that were male were given the last name of Strange. We meet him when he is a junior librarian. <sighs> Be still, my heart. He's a librarian. <laughs> and he is fascinated about a mythical city named Weep. He believes, though, that it actually existed, that it really was. And he has spent most of his professional career doing research, combing the archives, reading dusty tomes that no one's looked at for centuries to find stories of Weep. He actually translates their language. He finds a shipping manifest, and he uses it to, like the Rosetta Stone, to piece together what Weep's language was. So when a prince and his delegation, his entourage, come through, who are going to find this long-lost city of Weep, Lazarus goes with them, and they do find it. And that's all I'm going to tell you. And then you two will be in the same boat as I am if you read this book anxiously awaiting the second one. It's all right. <laughs> Morris Award. All right. I, mean, I promise I'm going to send The Hate You Give around so you know what it's about. So, The Hate You Give, it was a Morris Award winner. I'm anxiously awaiting her next book. Okay. So, my next books that I'm going to share with you are The Morris Awards. And again, The Hate You Give was a Morris Award winner. So, these are the first 
It was first given in 2009, and it honors a book published by a first-time author writing for teens and, and celebrating impressive new voices in young adult literature. So, and this is, I booktalked this to Lincoln High. It's Starfish by Akimi Don Bowman. And I said, you know, right now Nebraska's kind of big in, in, in the young adult world. There's like two or three books now that actually take place in Nebraska. Um, Stephanie Perkins, Stranger in the House, does take place in Nebraska. And this Perkins, who's not originally from Nebraska, actually did a bit of research. And guess what she knows we're known for? Football. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. As a native Nebraskan, it pains me. No offense. I know a lot of people love the game. It brings a lot of money to the city. But there is so much more that is wonderful about Nebraska that no one ever, ever knows about. But I will credit Miss Perkins that at least she did her homework and she made a reference to the football team. That was pretty much, and, and it was a, a rural um, community. So there's that. Akimi Don Bowman does, I'm not sure if she did her homework. We, this, the main character um, lives in Nebraska, Kiki. Her name is Kiki Himura. She is half Japanese, half European American. They live in Nebraska and that is the only mention ever, like there are no landmarks, she doesn't name a city. <laughs> they don't go to West Roads or Crossroads or South Point. So all that, they, she didn't even mention football. <laughs> Poor Mr. Frost. <laughs> so, but it does, it starts in Nebraska and Kiki is a talented artist. She is a senior in high school. She is hoping to escape her family, who is, I think I can safely say, toxic. Her um, parents are divorced. Her father has remarried. Um, and if once you meet Kiki's mother, you can't blame him because she is a narcissist. It is all about her, her, her. Um, and she's made all three of her children's lives pretty much miserable. Each of the children deal with their mother differently. But Kiki is the one who takes it personally and who basically keeps coming back for more abuse. She's not physically abusive, but she is mentally abusive. So when Kiki doesn't get into the art school that she has set her heart on, you know, remember how they would say have a safety school? Yeah, Kiki didn't listen. Um, so it's graduation and a childhood friend is back. He and his family had moved to California. They reconnect and He's, Jamie says, why didn't you come back? My parents really miss you. Why didn't you come and visit California for a while? So she does, and it changes her life. It changes how she sees herself. She um, connects with an artist. Um, he encourages her to continue to explore her talents, and in the meantime, to apply in art schools that are in California. If you want to find out what happens, you'll want to read Starfish by Akimi Don Bowman. Takes place in Nebraska. Mm, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> I don't know where in Nebraska because they dropped no hints. <coughs> Nebraska is kind of a blank canvas. This was a very hard book to read. It is well written. It reads easily. It wasn't the language. It was the subject matter that made it painful. The name of the book is Devils Within by S.F. Henson. And it is about a young man named Nate. Nate was eight the first time he stabbed someone. He was 11 when he earned his red laces, a prize for spilling blood for the cause. And he was 14 when he murdered his father and the leader of the fort, a notorious white supremacist compound in self-defense, landing in a treatment center while the state searched for his next of kin. Now in the custody of an uncle he never knew existed who wants nothing to do with him, Nate just wants to disappear. He's enrolled in a new school under a false name 
so, no that, so that no one from the fort can find him because they want to take revenge. He struggles to forge a new life, trying to learn how to navigate the world where people of different races interact without enmity. But he can't stop awful thoughts from popping into his head or help the way he shivers with a desire to commit violence. He wants to be different. He just doesn't know where to start. Then he meets Brandon, a person the fort conditioned Nate to hate, to despise on sight. But Brandon's also the first person to treat him like a human being instead of a monster. Brandon could never understand Nate's dark past, so Nate keeps quiet, and it works for a while. But all too soon, Nate's world comes crashing together, and he must decide between his own survival and standing for what is right, even if it's not easy. So, I read this book. I liked this book. I liked Nate. He wants to do right. It was an incredibly hard book to read for me. The author talks about the research that she did to write this book. She is from the Deep South. The fort and the neo-Nazi group that lives there are, are fictional, but they are rooted in fact. They are amalgamations of several different groups that currently operate in the United States and abroad. A real compound like the fort exists in Alabama and in other parts of the country, and the methods the fort uses to spread its hate, white extinction, website, uh, white extinction website, sorry, racist notes and Easter eggs, flyers, media training, boot parties, red laces, all are real. The hate incidents in this book are also real. I relied heavily on data and research collected by the Southern Poverty Law Center, whose website is full of informative resources like their hate map, which shows the number and location of every hate group in the United States. All the statistic in this, statistics in this book are accurate as of the date of publication but it is not a static number. These groups move, shrink, grow, and change. If you want to know the most recent number and be aware of hate groups in your area, and then she gives the website. It's the world we live in. We can change it, but it's sometimes gotta be one person at a time, and it's gotta be enough people standing up to say that it's wrong. Devil Within by S.F. Henson. Okay, Dear Martin by Nick Stone was a um, Morris Award winner. And this book shares some similarities with The Hate You Give. It is about a young man named Justice. He is an honor student. He has been accepted to Yale. He goes to an elite prestigious private school in Atlanta. He does not know Star, just FYI, okay? <laughs> um, he is one of three African-American students in his school. He's a scholarship student. His mom is a single parent, she works long hours, and he lives on campus. The book begins with him getting arrested. He is rescuing his ex-girlfriend. She's a piece of work. She looks European-American, but she is biracial. Her father is African-American. Her mother is like a Norwegian supermodel. I know, sometimes there are elements of fantasies in these books. <laughs> and she is inebriated to the point where she should not be driving. So Justice got a text from a friend saying that, you know, she's gonna drive, she's in no condition to drive, so she, he goes to find her, and he's trying to get the keys from her, to her Beamer out of her hands so that she won't drive and get killed or a DUI. So a policeman pulls up, sees a visibly African-American gentleman wrestling with a young woman who appears to be European-American, 
it doesn't matter that she's inebriated. It doesn't matter that she can, you know, barely stand, let alone talk. He gets arrested. He spends three hours sitting on the curb in a zip tie handcuffs until finally one of the teachers comes and says, yes, this is a, you know, a student at our school. He is, you know, her ex-boyfriend. He was not trying to carjack her car. He doesn't get arrested. He does not get charges placed against him. But for three hours, he is sitting on a cement curb with his hands zip tied behind him just because he's African-American and the officer refuses to let him speak or to explain what's going on. So the title comes from the fact that he writes letters to Martin Luther King. You probably have all seen the bracelets, What Would Jesus Do? Justice, What Would Martin Do? So Martin goes to the school. He has a class called Social Evolution. It's a current events class. And he's in it with his best friend, Manny, who is also African-American. But Manny's parents are well-educated, very successful professionals who own their own business. And so Manny is there not only because he on merit because he has the grades but he's also there because his parents pay the tuition to make to allow him to go to this private school manny and justice are friends but there are students they're one of three african-american students in this school so they're sitting in class and jared one of their caucasian classmates says that racial discrimination is a thing of the past that it doesn't happen anymore <laughs> and justice doesn't feel like he can say anything because he's a scholarship student and Jared points to Manny and says, well, look, you know, you're here, you're, you're, you're parents, you know, there's racial, there's no racial inequality because, you know, your father owns his own business, he's got more money than I do, you drive a better car than I do. And one of the um, European-American students who happens to be Jewish points out, it's difficult to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you can't afford boots or even shoes. It's a quick read. It was a good read. I am glad that books like this are getting published. A lot of my adolescents, they read this book. Some of them are living it. I mean, when I, because I, when I go for Teen Read Week, I, I bring historical books. My degree is actually in history with a minor in political science. Not that I have an agenda, but I, they need to know history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you might have seen the article that like 41% of the people don't know anything about the Holocaust and 66% of millennials just don't know. That horrifies me. No, that we forget so fast. Well, that's something we need to not forget. And we need to not forget that before 1963, the Civil Rights Act was not passed. I mean, it's it's still a relatively recent thing. And personally, I am horrified that it took that long. But... And the kids are horrified too, like, but they don't know anything about that. And so like, when I will give them dates, I'm like, what year was the Civil Rights Act passed? They don't know. FDR is spinning like a top in his grave right now because there are very few students, when I ask what happened on December 7th, 1941, yes. <laughs> they have no Vietnam. But one of the things I do when I take books out to the middle schools and the high schools when I share them with students, because one, I bring a whole bunch of different books. I bring nonfiction, I bring graphic novels, I bring science fiction, I bring regular fiction, because I want them to see the diversity of choices they have in Lincoln City Libraries. I also want them to see themselves yeah. when when I'm book talking. I want I don't Something I try they to make might want to read that, and I want to make sure that I have a diverse group of, of students. So I'm really happy that more and more books like this are getting published. Yeah. 
I wish the subject, this is a painful subject matter. Like, it, again, it needs to stop happening. <laughs> Sorry. It happens regardless in every culture, though. Um, the name of this book, and this was a Morris winner, Saints and Misfits. It's a novel by S.K. Ali. Um, and um, she is a teacher in Toronto who's writing on Muslim culture and life has appeared in the Toronto mm -hmm. State. Her family includes Muslim scholars currently listed in the 500 most influential Muslims in the world, and her insight into Muslim cu culture is both personal and far-reaching. She lives with her family and a massive, he'd say muscled, cat named Yeti. So she has a cat. <laughs> so this is a book about a young woman named Jenna. Her mom is very unusual in that she is the only diverse person in their mosque. And we meet her on the beach. <laughs> and she has, um, and I, I, I know this, um, I've asked a, a Muslim student that volunteered with us, and I also know this because my sister-in-law converted to Islam when she married a gentleman from Lebanon. So, you know, a lot of times we see the women wearing the hijabs and the abaya. You don't have to wear that. Um, it's a choice. It depends on how you interpret the Quran and how you interpret certain passages. It's cultural. A lot it, of it is mm -hmm. cultural rather than so in the religion not itself. Not much difference from the nuns. Right. Yeah. Or the wearing the hat in the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. which was lots longer. Right. So in my family, Hussein's sisters, who were born in the faith, do not wear the hijab. They, their hair's looking just like, well, they have more hair than I do, but <laughs> <laughs> their hair shows. My sister-in-law, Janet, who, and I respect this, she, you know, she follows the tenets of her faith. She wears the hijab and the abaya. She, you know, she follows the tenets. Um, so when we went to um, Oceans of Fun, all together, Serena and her wore like a scuba suit. And that's what Jen is wearing at the beginning of this book. She's at the beach and she's wearing a bathing suit that <coughs> conforms to the modesty principles because she, that's what she believes in. Her mom is not making her wear it. Her father doesn't even want her to wear it. She, he's like, you don't need to wear that. Your mom's not here. And she was like, you don't understand. I'm doing this because I want to wear it. Jen is a good kid. She likes a guy. She likes a guy who's not a member of her faith. And that is a dilemma for her. The problem the, the misfit, she says there are three types of people in this world. Saints, those special people moving the world forward. Sometimes you gaze right through them, or at least I do. They're in your face so much you can't see them, like you can't see your nose. Misfits, people who don't belong, like me, the way I don't fit into dad's brand new family, or the leftover one composed of mom and my older brother, mama's boy, Muhammad. Also, there's Jeremy and me, misfits, because although, literally speaking, Jana and Jeremy sound good together, we don't go together. Same planet, different worlds. But sometimes worlds collide and beautiful things happen, right? And monsters. Well, monsters wearing saint masks, like in Flannery O'Connor's story, like the monster at my mosque. People think he's holy, untouchable, but nobody has seen under the mask except me. So, Jenna likes Jeremy. Jeremy is European-American. He is not a, he's not a Muslim. And so, you know, she, in theory, would not be allowed to date him. But they're friends, and she does have a huge crush on him. The monster is a gentleman at her mosque who has memorized the Quran, and everyone thinks that that's wonderful. He doesn't speak Arabic. He doesn't understand what he's memorized. But he's able to quote passages from it. And everybody thinks that he is like, oh, saint. What they don't know is that this gentleman groped Jenna at a party, that he behaved in a less than saintly manner. Yeah, it I goes. Bet he found the passage to justify him. Well, that could be argued for every text, well, but yes. um, <laughs> Jenna has to find the fortitude to call him out. 
and it's about her family. Her father, her her older brother Muhammad, has moved back. He has fallen in love with a young woman in their mosque named Sarah, and Jenna's mom and her brother and her all do follow the tenets, even though Jenna's mom did divorce her husband, and they can do that. Muhammad wants to date Sarah, but he has to have a chaperone, and that's why he um, he keeps asking Jenna to be the person who goes on the dates with him so that he can continue to court this girl. So it's a family story. It's a story of Jenna finding the strength to call this gentleman at her mosque out for the behavior that he did. Um, and it's a look at a culture that maybe not everyone is familiar with. But um, I think it's important for because I have a lot of kids who come from all over. One of our GoPo students is from Turkey, which made me super excited because I get to use my Turkish with her. I love Turkey. It was a fun country to visit. So every time she does something, I keep saying, Teşekkür, Teşekkür, <laughs> which is thank you in Turkish. <laughs> I try to learn please and thank you in every country I visited. So, <laughs> All right, nonfiction. And then, ladies, you know, you're going to be able to go out and get pedicures, go have lunch, check out books. <laughs> So I had more nonfiction books on here that I'd read, but when I put them on hold, they didn't come back. So one was about photojournalism. It was about um, uh, Capra and, and um, uh, Tarot and its eyes of the world. That one was really good. Um, so nonfiction, Vincent and Theo, the Van Gogh Brothers by Deborah Heligman was the winner. Yay! Um, whoops, sorry. One of the other honor books was hashtag not your princess. Voices of Native American Women, edited by Lisa Charlie Boy and Mary Beth Leatherdale. And I did read this book. It's a slender volume, ladies, for those of you who evaluate your books by how skinny they are. That's what my middle school friends do. This is a book, and I struggled with it. I even struggled with Long Way Down. Poetry is lost on me. Unless it's Shel Silverstein or rhymes, means nothing. So this is a collection of poetry. Um, by Native American women. And this was the one that spoke to me most because it was written in graphic novel format. Yay, comic books! <laughs> I used to work in a comic book store. <laughs> um, and this is a tale of two Winonas. And so it's about a young woman. I guess there was an Indian legend about a young Indian maiden whose father had arranged a marriage for her with a white man who had three faces. He was a trapper, he was a white man, and he, I think he was a liar. Anyway, she doesn't want to marry him, so she throws herself off a cliff. That was the first Winona. And so here she is. She is like, I'm not that Indian maiden. And she goes, and I also wasn't named for our tragic, um, I wasn't named for our tragic nymph. Um, I'm not named after Winona writer. <laughs> I am just named Winona. So it, this is a novel in poetry. Um, it's also visual art. So this is a, a woman who is showing how, you know, a lot of people see Indian maidens as like, you know, ooh, a sexy sexy, you know, Indian person, but this is actually their traditional dress. So she, she has a photo series where she documents it. So this is through art um, and through poetry, um, how they basically kind of take back their lives. Like, you know, we're, we, we are so much more than what you were pigeon, pigeonholing us into. So, and I will refer back to that book in a bit because I struggled to read it because I poetry. <sighs> I, it's a personal failing. I admit to it. <laughs> My husband reads poetry. That's because he's an English professor. Hmm. Um, this book, The 57 Bus, yeah. 
a true story of two teenagers and the crime that changed their life by Dashka Slater was my favorite. It was so good. This is a true story. It is about Oakland, California. And the author talks about how Oakland is such a diverse, it is one of the most culturally diverse cities in the United States, and it's also one of the most socioeconomically diverse cities in the United States, where the stretch between the well-to-do or the well-hilled and those living in poverty is huge. If it weren't for the 57 bus, Sasha and Richard never would have met. Both were high school students in Oakland, California, one of the most diverse cities in the country, but they inhabited different worlds. Sasha lived in the middle-class foothills and attended a small private school. Richard lived in the economically challenged flatlands and attended a large public one. After school each day, their paths overlapped on the bus for a mere eight minutes. But one afternoon, a single reckless act left Sasha severely burned and Richard charged with two hate crimes and facing life imprisonment. The case garnered international attention, thrusting both teenagers into the spotlight. But in the 57 bus, author Dashka Slater shows that what might at first seem like a simple matter of right and wrong, justice and injustice, victim and criminal, is something more complicated and something far more heartbreaking. This book is researched to the detail that Deborah Helligman did for Vincent and Theo. While she did not read 658 letters, she interviewed everyone involved in the case. She talks about how the adolescent brain, you know, people thought, okay, the brain stops developing at age six. Uh-uh. Like 11, between 11 and 13, your brain starts developing again, which would explain some of the things like my father would ask, what were you thinking? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it seemed, like, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I literally thought that I had thought it through. <laughs> Little did I know that your brain starts developing again between 11 and 13, which sometimes does lead to irrational in my case, dumb, but not life-threatening decisions. So Richard is a good African-American. He's a nice kid. He's um, not the best student. He's had some trouble. Um, his mom is a single parent. Um, he was in the foster care system briefly because of truancy. And he is on the bus with Dashka, or excuse me, with Sasha. Sasha is a person who is agender. And the author talks about how, as she's referring to the people involved in this case, she tries to use the pronouns that they prefer. And Sasha was um, born, his middle name is Alexander. And when he told his parents that he was agender, without gender, he prefers to be called Sasha. Sasha can be either male or female. Sasha feels most comfortable wearing skirts, waistcoats, ties, and hats. Um, so Sasha was reading Anna Karenina in the back of the bus. He, they fell asleep. And even the parents, as they're doing the interviews, the mom admits that she struggles sometimes using the appropriate pronoun with their child. So Sasha had fallen asleep on the bus reading Anna Karenina, and Richard and his cousin and a friend had gotten on. They had a basketball. They were joshing around. They were being stupid not maliciously stupid but they were being kids and um richard had a big lighter that he kept trying to flick and it would splutter and go out and he'd flick it again and it would splutter and go out and he would flick it and it would go splutter and go out well egged on by his friends and by just sheer 
not thinking, he flicked the big lighter on the skirt. And it, he thought he, and later on in the interview, he said he thought it would, you know, catch and then go out and smolder. Instead, it went up like a torch. Um, Sasha suffered third degree burns on 20% of his lower, their lower body. The story begins. Richard freaks out, he gets off the bus, but then he gets back on the bus because he, he wants to help Sasha. He's trying to help. In the meantime, other bus riders have helped Sasha. Him and his cousin leave. They do get arrested. And like any 16-year-old boy, he's thinking, if my mom doesn't find out about this, I'm not going to get in trouble. So when the police in the room asked, would you like to have, you know, would you like to call your mom? No. Would you like to have a lawyer present? No. And he made some really stupid decisions. So this story goes over two years. And Richard wrote letters to Sasha and their family saying, I am so sorry. I'm really a nice person. I had no idea. I, I did not mean, you know, he apologizes. He says, I wish I could, you know, this, the lawyer, because he feels that it's not going to help, because he does eventually get a lawyer, he really feels that it's not going to help. Richard, he doesn't give them to the family. They talk about restorative justice and Sasha's family because they know nothing of Richard, does not opt for it. Ultimately, everything gets cleared up. I mean, Richard does go to prison, but he does not get tried as an adult, and he will be released, and hopefully his life will not be adversely as adversely affected as if he would have been um, tried as an adult. Sasha ends up going, I believe, to Yale. So both students do end up going on. It is, you are like in the front row watching this unfold. And um, I learned a tremendous amount about, mostly about people. There, there's a section in here where they talk about agender, cisgender, and all the other gender. <laughs> and all the different sexualities and all the different romantic feelings and it even if you just read that it was a truly eye-opening book and very well written and that is the 57 bus by Dashka Slater all right staying on the young adult side we're gonna get to the adult side soon ladies oh wait oh my gosh I can't believe I almost forgot the Alex Award winners <gasps> the Alex Award are adult books there are 10 books. We don't own all of them at Lincoln City Libraries. But these are adult books written that have special appeal to young adults. So these are books that teens might like. Um, Clockwork Dynasty by Daniel H. Wilson. You might know him. He is the, um, I've book talked his first book, Robopocalypse. You might want to take OnStar out of your car. When the robot, um, when the computer robot uprising happens, you don't want OnStar. <laughs> so I would argue, though, that he is still stuck on robots because this is about automatons and so clockwork heart is about a young woman her grandfather um, had been in the russian army during the siege of leningrad he had seen this gentleman do these heroic amazing superhero type acts of fate and as this guy after he defeated a german panzer tank goes off into the distance to you know do more fighting a piece of metal falls down and so this young woman has this piece of metal left to her from her grandfather. She's become an anthropologist, and she has spent her life researching automatons. Turns out they live amongst us. And technology has gotten them so that they can blend in more well, you know, e more easily with us. So it's uh, 
fantasy, science fiction, automatons do exist. Um, she writes about some of the automatons that, um, you know, Marie Antoinette had where the, the, you know, the young lady at the desk who can, when you wind her clockwork, will write or play the pianoforte. But these are a little more advanced. <laughs> clockwork Heart by Daniel H. Wilson. Okay, well, this will come as no surprise to you. I read all the C.S. Lewis books when I was a kid. And my mother has two antique wardrobes. And the first thing I did when my mother got these darn wardrobes is I opened the doors and I checked the panels to make sure that they didn't lead anywhere. I was really disappointed, man. I was ready to go to Narnia. I've been ready to go to Wonderland. I've been ready to leave this planet for decades now. Yet here I am. <laughs> so this book um, I brought last year or probably last fall, Every Heart a Doorway by Shauna McGuire. This book was an Alex Award winner last year. And the reason I brought it is because the sequel was also an Alex Award. So I'm going to get that. So if you don't remember, Eleanor West Home for Wayward Children, no solicitations, no visitors, no quests. Children have always disappeared under the right conditions, slipping through the shadows under a bed or at the back of a wardrobe, tumbling down rabbit holes and into old wells and emerging somewhere else. But magical lands have little need for used-up miracle children. Nancy stumbled, tumbled once, but now she's back. The things she experienced, they change a person. The children under Miss West's care understand all too well. And each of them is seeking a way back to their own fantasy world. But Nancy's arrival marks a change in all at the home. There's a darkness just around each corner, and when tragedy strikes, it's up to Nancy and her newfound schoolmates to get to the heart of things, no matter the cost. So Miss West had actually gone to a magical reality herself, she came back and she has formed a school. So if you have a daughter or a son who's gone away and then comes back and they're not the daughter or son you remember and you want that one back, you're going to send them to this private school where, you know, Miss West assures you, that, oh, yes, yes, we'll take good care of your little precious muffin. But she's going to, you know, she's not going to deny you. She's going to say, I know it was real. And that's going to make you happy and ultimately your parents unhappy. But so I love this book because it's a slender volume, but I love the whole idea that yes, there is an alternate reality, a parallel universe, or someplace other than here. I've spent my entire life looking for that doorway. Down Among the Sticks and Bones by Shana McGuire um, continues the story of two, um, two sisters, twin sisters that we met in this book. Um, they go to a land that would probably be populated by Victor Frankenstein or, you know, um, Count Dracula. <laughs> um, and, but it also deals with gender issues because the two girls are twins and both um, during their childhood, you know, the father kind of got one girl, Jacqueline, who gets nicknamed Jack, Jack who is a tomboy. Um, and the other, the, the mom takes Jillian or Jill under her under her wing and she's a girly girl so they each have their own you know places to fill in their family's life until they go up the or they go, there's a trunk of play clothes that their grandmother left them and they they're digging all the clothes out and they find out that it leads to this land where you know victor frankenstein and dracula live and they find themselves there i know my mother's like you need to live in the real world susan i do Okay, Martha Wells, All System Red. It's the first book in the Murderbot Diaries. This is science fiction. I love this book. It was so fun. Okay, so it's a corporate-dominated space uh, future. And this is about a group of scientists. They're on this planet. They're checking it out. They're doing uh, an exploratory survey. 
they've gotten a contract from the corporation that controls this sector of space. Part of the contract is that they have to take security robots with them. They're scientists. They don't need security robots. What they don't know is that their robot has hacked its governor. It is not controlled by Asimov's three robotic rules where you cannot hurt a human, you, you know, you, you cannot allow the actions of a human to hurt another human, all that good stuff. Basically, though, what it's done is it has downloaded 200 hours of media and it simply wants to watch its shows. Think, you know, Sopranos or, or you know, whatever TV streaming thing that you're watching right now that you're enjoying. So it's supervising this excavation when suddenly some of the local flora comes up and tries to eat them. The robot does what it's supposed to do. It saves them. And so the scientific crew realizes that there's another crew on the other side of the planet. They need to warn them. But when they get there, they find out that the robots in that crew have killed everybody. And what we find out, as the reader, we know that the company had tried to download new software into our robot, the one who had hacked its governor. But because it's a you know lone agent, it didn't take. And so it's up to him. And I, it refers to it as a, um, I think it refers to himself as a him, but he has to keep his people safe. And the, the lead of the scientific expedition kind of does figure out that he's hacked his governor, but doesn't say anything. And I'm not gonna tell you, it's, a, it's just a fun read. And it's like, yeah, it's a quick read. You'll be able to knock it off. Um, the Lines We Cross is the third book by Randa Abdel Fattah. So the first book she wrote was Does My Head Look Big in This? It's about an Australian student who is Muslim who decides to wear the hijab to school to, to obey the modesty laws. Um, the Ten Things I Hate About Me is about a young woman whose um, father is a widower, and, and her father wants her to, do, to embrace her culture more than she wants to embrace the Lines We Cross is about a young woman who is Muslim. She is an immigrant. They live in Australia. And it is she gets accepted to a prestigious private um, focus high school program. Um, she wants to do design. She ends up partnering with a gentleman whose father is the head of an anti-immigrant group in Australia. And so it's how the two of them kind of learn more about each other and how the young man, how you said, you know, does start to come around and realize that maybe his father is mistaken in some of his opinions and views. So it's a, it's, I won't call it a romance, although there is an attraction between the two, but it's about what happens when, you know, the person you're afraid of becomes your lab partner. <laughs> the lines we cross. It was a quick read. I read it in a day. I couldn't put it down. It was so good. Love, Hate, and Other Filters by Samira Ahmed was a book I got as an ARC um, when I was at ALA. And it is about, um, um, she's 17 years old. She was born in the United States. Her name is Maya Aziz. So she is a good Indian daughter. Her parents, of course, are already talking about finding her a suitable boy. Um, you know, they want her to go to school yeah. with, like, close to home so that she can live in home because they are... Um, Muslim, and so you know they, they're talking about suitable boys. They want her to go to school. They want her to live at home. She has a dream. She wants to be a photographer. She wants to um, make movies, and she wants to live in New York City. And what happens though is that there's an act of terrorism in their community, and it's about how everybody reacts and how they start to view. Even though um, Maya and her family and her neighbors have lived here forever, suddenly people in their community are looking at them like love, hate, and other filters by Samira Ahmed.
A Quiet Kind of Thunder is a graphic novel, or excuse me, I'm not, it's not a graphic novel, it's a young adult novel. Steffi is selectively mute. She can talk. She has the ability to talk, but she usually chooses not to. Okay. And um, she's at the beginning of her high school career. Her best friend has elected to go to another um, program. She wants to be a veterinarian, so she's going to a science-based high school. And Steffi is stuck, you know, without the person who's always been kind of the ambassador, the interpreter for her. Um, in all of her classes, she has, you know, um, people who will interpret for her. And her day changes on the first day of school because there's a new student in her class, Rice, who's just transferred from another town, who is deaf. And so, of course, they are grouped together. And in spite of the fact, um, you know, it doesn't always work out this way, but in this case, in this story, they do fall in love. And Rice um, ends up kind of drawing Steffi out of herself. Um, you know, doesn't get too physical, but it's a good story. Just a slice of life. How many of you read Helter Skelter? Oh, yeah. Or wait, wait, no, I'm sorry, wrong book. My <laughs> back up. In cold <sighs> yeah, In Cold Blood by oh, Truman Capote. Gosh. All right. Yeah. yeah. I have not read that book. Oh, I know. Well, it was always stolen from the library when I was of age when it would have been interesting. <laughs> well, Amy Brashear, who's from Kansas, decided to write a book about it. This is her first book. It was not a Morris Award winner, but I did read it because I was intrigued. This is a reimagining of Cold Blood from the point of view of a adolescent who knew the family. Um, so I, there were some things I wasn't quite sure about because like I, I didn't know the story, but she does a good job of explaining what happened. But as somebody who, you know, I've, I don't watch CSI, I, I don't watch those crime shows, but I'm, you know, they've been around and we've had enough books that I'm familiar, like you do not go into a crime scene. She's like <laughs> breaking into the house and looking around. <laughs> and so she's... Um, the young woman's boyfriend is like the prime suspect and she's trying to clear his name so she keeps going on to the crime scene in the meantime harper lee and truman capote show up and they're featured in the book too and they want to interview all the neighbors and then there's the usual thing of like they had just moved here from new york and she doesn't have many close friends and she's kind of a misfit and her father ends up who he's a lawyer ends up being the um defending lawyer for the gentlemen who are ultimately pinned for the crime. Atticus. Mm. Yeah. So. No. That's it, folks. That, that's all, folks. But I'm bumping. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to see you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. Mm-hmm.